Amen. Thank you so much, Graham. Uh, what a beautiful message, obviously, in that song. And thankful for you being willing to come and share that with us here. Good morning. It is good to see all of you here this morning. I'm thankful that you are here with us. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Psalm chapter 17 this morning. Uh, as we continue our November in the Psalm series, I did want to point out something that you'll see, I pray, is a bit of a theme today. Uh, Brother Dustin, when he came and read the last verse of Psalm 40, uh, verse 17 said, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. And we sang this morning, uh, Lord, I need you. And we're going to see this morning in Psalm 17, that theme carried on, that David is in that sort of place in life. He's in a position, he is uh, surrounded by enemies, he is worried, he is scared, and he realizes that the only help that he can have, the only hope that he does have, is in God. And so we're going to see that. Some of you this morning may be in that place. You may be in a place in life where not necessarily literal enemies surround you, but situations or times or constraints or anxiety is just everywhere around you. And if you are, I pray that this psalm, and that's one of the beautiful things about the psalms, is that they are, are very raw in a way that some of Paul's letters and some of our other scripture may not seem that way. This is David pouring out his heart. This is almost like a, a divinely inspired prayer journal. And we're going to see in, in chapter 17 today where his confidence lied in such times and where ours has to lie as well. So if you would, look with me there. Psalm 17, I'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right you have tried my heart, you have visited me by night, you have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths, my feet have not slipped. As we see David here, his opening petition that we see really flows right into what seems like his reason that he thinks that God is going to reply to his petition. So the petition itself becomes very clear here in verses 1 and 2. He's asking God for help, and specifically what he's asking God for in these two verses is vindication. It's clear as you read these verses that, that when we really pay attention that David is is pointing out that there is an enemy of his that he's dealing with. So we have David and we have the enemy, and David trusts fully that he is on the right side of this ordeal, that he is in the right and that his enemy is in the wrong. And he lays that out because at the very beginning, he refers to his cause or his side of the ordeal as a just cause. He says, Here, a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. And then he calls in the beginning of verse 2 for vindication. He says, uh, God, he says, from your presence, let my vindication come. And so this, this idea of vindication, if you're not as familiar with it, it's, it's wanting God to act like a judge. He's asking for a judicial decision that shows that he is in the right. 
that he has done what he was supposed to, that he is in the right place, and that he would be vindicated. That's what he's asking. God, look at this situation, look at this ordeal, and judge and show to everyone that I am on the right side of this. And then he reiterates that at the end of verse 2. Let your eyes behold the right, or let your eyes behold what is right. So David really lays out, God, I need you to step in as an intercessory here. I need you to be a judge between myself and this enemy, and I trust fully that I'm on the right side of this. That's why I'm calling for vindication. That's why I'm calling for you to step in and judge. And then he, it appears in the next few verses that he really lays out why it is that he thinks that he's in the right, why he thinks that, that things are going to fall on the good side for him. Verse 3, he says, you've tried me. He says, you've tested me, and you'll find nothing. In verse 3, he says, I purpose that my mouth will not transgress. In verse 5, he says, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your past. My feet have not slipped. And so David has great confidence that he's in the right place, that he's doing what he's supposed to be doing, that even if God examines deeply and looks intently at who he is and what he's doing, that God is going to fall and saying that David is in the right and that David is going to be vindicated. And so point one this morning is just helping us to understand that David confidently calls for God's judgment. It's what he's doing here in this Psalm 17. He's asking for God to step in, and he is very, very confident that things are going to fall on the right side for him. Now, as you look at this at first glance, it appears that David trusts a lot in his own works, doesn't it? I mean, and you look at it, he says, God, I need you to step in and be the judge here. I need you to vindicate me. I need you to judge that I'm in the right. And then he goes into, it seems almost like he's laying out his case. You can test me. You can try me. I haven't done anything wrong. I've kept my feet on the path that you've told me to go. I've, I've stayed away from the ways of the violent people. And so it appears, well, David's pretty confident in himself here. First, let me say I don't believe that's true of David, and I'll show you why in just a second as we continue in the psalm. But I will stop for just a moment. I talked with some, some brothers about this text earlier this week, and, and we looked at this idea that not only does it appear that way here, but the thinking that it appears that David has here in these few verses, I think can be prevalent even today among Christians, that God should treat us better because of who we are, uh, that because we go to church regularly or because we read our Bible or keep a, a structured devotional time or listen to Caleb or whatever, all of these different reasons we feel like we might shouldn't ever get sick. It's kind of that idea, not to the full extent, but kind of that prosperity gospel to an extent, that right, because of what I've done, kind of this merit-based, because of who I am, that, God, you should treat me better than others. And, and some places I hear this, I hear it probably most often uh, at funerals. And I know it may not always be meant this way, but we, you know, if a really strong, faithful Christian dies, uh, especially before we feel like they should, that's a prevalent thought is, why would God take them? You know, we say that. Why, why would God take this man or this woman rather than somebody else? 
Uh, one, I think, missing that it's a blessing whenever God's people die and go home to be with him, but also thinking that almost merit based. Like, because of the way that he lived, God should have left him and taken somebody else. I think sometimes it comes out in our prayers, is that right? If we're being real raw and emotional like David is here, we can pray. You know, we, we want a promotion at work, we want something. And so we say, God, look at me and look at these other people. Right? I'm a Sunday school teacher. I, I'm a deacon. or I, you know, I serve on these committees. Why would I, God, why wouldn't I get the promotion? Or we ask things like, God, how could you let this happen? After all, I am, or I've been a member of this church for so long, or I sing on the praise team. God, why would you let something like this happen to me? And I think sometimes we can really start to have that thought that God's favor should be given to us based on who we are and what we've done based on merits, based on works. And, of course, it's, it's not a rabbit that we have time to chase this morning. But I will just remind us that that's not how God works. That God is merciful and He is gracious and the gospel is not merit-based. And we should all be thankful for that. Because if it were works and merit-based, we'd all be headed to hell. We would all receive no favor. Because even the very best of us, at our very best, on our own without Christ, we're very sinful people. And we have to remember that. And so, because of the truth of the Scripture showing us that that's not how God works, and because of what we're about to see in the Scripture, I don't believe that that's what David's doing here. And I pray that we would be very careful not to live that sort of life and pray those sort of prayers either. Look with me in verse 6 as we see, all right, well then where does David's confidence lie? Why is he so confident that God is going to vindicate him and bring justice to him? And so in verse 6 he says, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge. From their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. For the wicked who do me violence. My deadly enemies who surround me. In this text. In these verses I just read. There is a key words in the ESV. Uh, word in Hebrew as this was originally written that I, I really wanted to spend it's more time than I normally spend on one individual word, but it's one that if you grasp it, if you understand it, it's going to change your understanding of this psalm and it's going to change your understanding of a whole lot of the psalms and it's going to change your understanding maybe of how it is that God works in our lives. But in verse 7, it says, Wondrously show your steadfast love. If you're reading out of the King James Version, it says your marvelous loving kindness. If you're reading in the NIV, it says your great love. Those words you will find throughout the Psalms. Whatever. If you're in the NIV, there are a lot of Psalms where you will find David or the psalmist appealing to God's great love. In the KJV, marvelous loving kindness. It's in lots of them. In the ESV, your steadfast love is in a whole bunch of the Psalms. And it's a, in, in, the, in the Hebrew, it's one word. I don't usually try and pronounce words in Hebrew group because I'm not good at it. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Let's be clear about that. But this word is one that I've come to know and to love deeply. And it's the word hesed. That's how we say it. It's because I don't have, if you're Jewish, you would put this 
sounded like chesed. We just say chesed because we're just trying to keep it simple. But this word is one that, that I want you, like many of you know agape for love in the Greek New Testament. I want you to be familiar with this word. Hesed. If you're reading in an ESV Bible, every time you're reading in a psalm and you see steadfast love, if you highlight, to be clear, I do not like highlighters. And I do not highlight in my Bible. But if you do, highlight that phrase every time you say If you underline, underline that phrase, steadfast love, because it's going to change the meaning of that whole psalm for us when you're reading it. All right, so this word is referring to God's covenant love with his people. This is God's promised love that's not for everybody, right? God gives grace to everyone. He says he makes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. But the truth is that there is a special love. There are special promises that are only for God's people. And this is referring to that love. Here's a, there's a guy named Michael Card. He wrote a whole book on trying to help people understand just this one word. And here's just a quote from it. He says, but what set the God of Israel apart then? He's telling why God's different than all the other gods anybody had ever seen. What made him completely unique to the point that the other gods were no gods at all is what still sets him apart today. He is the God who delights in being kind, in loving his creation, and in offering forgiveness and salvation to those who have no right to expect anything from him. The great surprise of the Hebrew Bible is not that God is awesome or holy. These characteristics we would expect from God. The great surprise is that he is kind, that he is a God of hesed. This is what fundamentally makes him unlike any other God then or now. See, that's the big thing that we miss about God's covenant sometimes. We understand covenant. We understand it's like a contract, like it's an agreement, like it's a promise. We understand all those things. But what we forget sometimes that the Bible writers remembered so much better is that all of the covenants that God ever made were God being merciful. Because when God made a covenant with Abraham, Abraham didn't deserve that covenant. When God made a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel, they didn't deserve that. They didn't deserve his promise and his protection and his love. They didn't deserve those things. They hadn't earned those things. When God made the promise to David that, that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever, David didn't deserve that. Every single time it was God offering somebody something that they did not deserve. It was him showing loving kindness. It was him being merciful in a way that he did not have to be. And when we see those covenants, if you go back and read them, especially the covenant that God makes with Abraham, it's very clear that the promise of those covenants taking place are contingent on one thing, and that is God's faithfulness. Right? We can't make him keep those covenants. We have to trust completely in him. If he's not keeping the covenants, they're not being kept. He's the one that has to, it's not like this, we meet in the middle kind of deal. It's all based on God, these things actually taking place. Us being protected, us being loved, us being cared for, us being guided. All those things, they are completely dependent on him and not us. And so I trust fully that, that David here shows us 
when he says, I call upon you for you will answer me, O God, incline your ear to me, hear my words, wondrously show your steadfast love, wondrously show your covenant love to those who are seeking refuge in you. And that's David. And so David is saying here, point two, David's trust was based on who God was. And I didn't want to make it too long, so in parentheses next to mine, I says not on who David was. David's trust was based on who God was, not on who David was. David's not saying, listen, everything's going to be fine because I followed the paths of God. Everything's going to be fine because if you test my heart, everything's good in there. No, David is saying, I trust that everything is going to be fine because, God, you promised that everything was going to be fine. You've promised that you would protect me from my enemies, and so that's what I'm leaning on. God, you show us again who you are. And that's the promise that we lean on. That's the promise that he leaned on. It's the promise that we lean on. All of his identity, David, all of his identity was wrapped up in who God was. He was one of God's people. He was loved by God. He was protected and watched over and guided by God. And he, rem- he remembers this well. The, the Bible writers did such a good job of remembering who they were with God and who they were without God. And sometimes I don't think we're as good about that. And we see it again here in, in, this, in the same text in verse 8. He says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And, and David, that's not... Uh, his material that he made on his own, he was not the one that coined these phrases. So just briefly, I want to give you the background of that because, again, it reiterates how desperately David needed God and how desperately we need God. And if you haven't caught on, this is the main point. This, I believe, point two, this point, this is the key point of this text. I believe this is what the whole psalm hinges on, and it's going to be the takeaway for us as well. That's why we're spending so much time here. So in There's a song of Moses, there are a couple, but in Deuteronomy 32, there's Moses' song. Moses is about to die, and he knows he's about to die. Uh, Joshua has already been chosen to secede him in leadership of the people of Israel, but Moses is worried, not worried, let me say, he's concerned that when he dies, that the people aren't going to remember how much they need God, and rightfully so, because that takes place, that does happen. And so he, he has this song, and in the song, he's reminding them of who God is and how desperately they need God. And it's long. I'm not going to look at all of it. If you want to, write that down. It's Deuteronomy chapter 32. But I do want to read you just a few verses. In verses 9 through 12, this is what Moses says. He says, But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, Jacob, right, who is where the nation's name from, Jacob, who becomes Israel. Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. So Moses says, y'all remember where we came from. Jacob, our ancestor, our father who we're named for, he was nobody. He was like a dude wandering in the wilderness, but God went and found him. 
and circled around him and nurtured him and cared for him and took care of him. He kept Jacob as the apple of his eye. And he acted like a mother eagle that stirs up her young and spreads her wings around them to protect them and to care for them. He said, Moses says, Jacob, Israel, our forefathers, our nation, we were nothing to be desired until God came along and made us into something. And David here quotes from that because he's saying, I need your protection and God, I have nothing on my own. Without you, I'm completely lost. I have to have your help. And that's why he calls on God's hesed. He doesn't say, look at who I am. He says, God, you promised to be our God. And that's what I'm leaning on. Because it's all that I have. I have nothing else. Now, this was not planned as part of this. But the children have a rehearsal tonight for their, uh, as they're getting ready for the Christmas program. And Miss Lana gave Chip, Chip, will you bring me your card? He got his speaking part this morning. And while I was walking in the sanctuary, he said, Dad, look, here's my speaking part. Do you want to say it or do you want me to say it? You want me? Okay, you'll practice. But it says, the gift of God's Son was given not because we deserve it, but because God loves us. And I said, man, that's what I'm trying to tell everybody this morning. That's what I want us to remember. That's what David is saying. God, my only hope is that you love me. My only hope is that you're still the God that you've always been. Without you, I'm gone. And so then he lays out in the next few verses who the enemy is. Verses 10 through 12, he says, They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. So David here, he's showing the contrast, right? The contrast does show who God's people are and who are not. If you're here for Psalm 15, you understand that, right? The question, who can sojourn up God's hill? Who can live in his tent? And he lays out people that live like this. That's what makes it clear that they're God's people, right? Our works don't make us God's people, but as God's people, our works should prove they should show that we're following God. And so here we see he contrasts, right? In verse 3, he said that his heart has been tried and found no wrong in it. And then here in verse 10, he says, these evil people have hearts that are callous and closed off to pity. So there's this contrast between David's heart that's open to God and these people whose heart is closed. Here we see in verse 11 that these people are, are set to be like bloodthirsty men, right? Who set their eyes to cast these people to the ground. But on the other side, David in verse 4 said that, that he is the type of person that has avoided the ways of the violent. And so he draws here several contrasts between him and following God and these people that just disregard God's teaching. They're not God's people. They do not follow God at all. And so then in verses 13 and 14, he just makes clear, if it hadn't been clear yet, God, this is what I desire of you. Verse 13, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance 
to their infants. So here in verse 13, he just makes it clear, God, I want you to fight this battle for me. God, you've done this for your people in the past. I need you to defeat this enemy. I can't defeat this enemy. I was listening to a song this week. told a man that I was going to share it with y'all. I'm not going to sing it. It's not necessarily where you would normally go to get theology, but I'd been studying this text all week, and so when I heard it, I said, man, that sounds a lot like Psalm 17. And it's Johnny Cash. Y'all have heard of Johnny Cash? And the song is... God's going to cut you down. I don't know if y'all know that song or not. I don't necessarily recommend, but I think it'll remind you this. When he says here, right, God, arise and confront him and subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. You cut them down, God. You defeat this enemy for me. In verse 14 is a difficult one to translate, and so we're not going to spend a lot of time on the exact meaning of it because it doesn't change the point. The point here is this. David's in trouble, and God's his only hope. David's in, in facing an enemy that he can't defeat on his own, and he needs God to step in. That's the point that we see here. And the last verse is one of the most beautiful in the psalm to me, and it's one that shows where David's ultimate hope is. He says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And as I thought about that, that shall, I shall see you face to face. God, I shall, I will be satisfied by your likeness or by seeing you. David's ultimate hope is that one day, one day he will stand before God and see him face to face. He will see the likeness, the image of God before him. And that's what he wants more than anything else. Point three, David fully trusted that God would keep him. He didn't know exactly how this battle was going to go. He didn't know exactly what things looked like. But in the end, God's promise is that you will always be mine. And so David says, God, in the end, this is what I want more than anything else. I want to see you face to face one day. I want to stand in front of you physically. That's what I'm looking for more than anything else. And why wouldn't he be that confident? I shall, I will. It's like, man, he's pretty confident. Why wouldn't he be that confident? God's never lied before. God's never made a mistake before. God sometimes has different plans than us, but they're never wrong. They're always right. But so as we try and, we try and take this, we try and take this psalm that we've seen here and apply it in our life, I know that sometimes that transition is a little bit hard. This is Old Testament. You talk about, God, you know, Brother Zach, you're talking about Hesed and covenant love and Abraham and Moses and David. I, that doesn't really resonate with me that much. I understand that, that we're not all in the same place there. And some of you think, I'm not an Israelite, right? You know, aren't those promises for the Israelite people? Here's what we have to recognize here. That what David trusted in was a covenant promise that God had made right we can all agree on that whether you understand all the rest of it or not, David said I trust in the promise that you've made to me this agreement that we've entered into that's what I'm leaning on that's where all my hope is and what we have to remember is that we as Christians have also entered into a covenant agreement with God I'm going to read to you a New Testament passage that helps to show this he's Contrasting the writer of Hebrews is contrasting the old covenant 
And the ways they did that was sacrifices and things to the new covenant. In Hebrews 9, 13 through 15, it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So what does this remind us? There's a new covenant, right? We talk about it when we take the Lord's Supper. Jesus said that this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And so we're reminded, brothers and sisters, that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, that you have entered into a covenant with God. We call it the new covenant. And all of us that have faith in Jesus, all of us that are Christians, are part of this new covenant. And here's what we also, here's how you apply Psalm 17 to your life. All of your hope, all of my hope is in that covenant. If it is not for God making that promise to us, that through faith in Jesus that we become his children and that our sins are washed away, and that we are given a purpose, and that we are made new, and that we are promised eternal life. If those things are not true, and you can't make them true, and I can't make them true, God is the only one that can forgive us when we believe in Jesus Christ. He's the only one that we have sinned against, so He's the only one that can forgive our sins. It is all of our hope is placed in this covenant. If God keeps His promise then everything is good. We have abundant life now and eternal life when we die. And so, brothers and sisters, we walk through this life not saying, look at who I am. Not saying, look at what I have done. Not comparing ourselves to everybody else and thinking, we'll be just fine because I'm better than my neighbor. I'm going to be okay because I go to church more often than my coworkers. No, we go through this life saying, I'll be okay because of God's love for me that I have entered into a covenant with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. All of my hope is in that, that I believe in Jesus, and through that, I'm given all these promises. And so this morning... I think the other thing that we cannot forget, and sometimes we forget about the, the new covenant, we feel like we've earned being part of the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, it's just like the covenant that God made with Abraham. It's just like the covenant that God made with Moses. It's just like the covenant that God made with David. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be forgiven of our sins. They're our sins. We don't deserve to not have to be punished. Because we've done wrong, right? And so we have to remember, God, thank you that you've set me free from the guilt that I had, that you've set me free from the condemnation of my sin, that you have made me part of this family, that you've adopted me as your child, that you've given... Thank you for all these things because I didn't deserve them. And there's nothing that I ever could have done to deserve them. The only reason we have them is because Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth. And died in our place. 
and then rose again. And now when we believe in him, we enter into this covenant with God and we're given all these promises. So I ask you this morning, do you understand what that means? Are you part of this new covenant? Have you entered into a covenant relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ? Because if not, brothers and sisters, this sounds bleak, but the truth is you have no hope. Unless you surrender your life to Christ, you have no hope. You have no hope here and now for peace and joy, and you have no hope of anything other than hell whenever you die. But the good news is Christ has already died, and if you would come today, He would have you, and He would give you all of these promises. I also ask you as we stand this morning, I ask you if you're here and you are a Christian, do you ever stop to think about how good it is that God has given us His covenant love? Because we didn't deserve it. He's so merciful. He's so worthy of our honor and praise. So I pray this morning, we're going to sing once again in just a moment, Lord, I need you. And I pray that you can sing it with a renewed understanding that you literally need him for everything. Without him, we have no hope and we have no help. So as we sing that, if you need to pray, you pray where you are. I will pray with you. If you have questions, come. I would love to answer your questions. But if not, then sing again this morning about the goodness of the Lord who we need so desperately. Brother Shane, Brother Graham, lead us.